This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Legends. This Monday on TNT, Legends returns for a thrilling new season. Sean Bean stars as Martin Odom, an undercover agent on the run, hunted by the FBI for a crime he doesn't remember committing. Follow him across Europe as he digs up clues from his past and uncovers his true identity. Season premiere, Monday, November 2nd at 10, 9 central on TNT. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The New York Magazine's Sex Lives hosts have seen it all. The good. I said that. This is a beautiful, you have a beautiful penis. The bad. Like you wake <laughs> up with like a like navy blue boy bed sheet next to like a clattering air conditioner. Oh, that's a bad scene. And the confusing. The whole idea of pulling out to like jerk off seems so crazy to me. <laughs> but every once in a while, they come across something that surprises even them. So uh, that was weirder <laughs> than I expected. <laughs> yep. <laughs> New York Magazine's Sex Lives. New episodes every Wednesday. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Vulture TV podcast recorded live from the New York Television Festival. Hey everyone, thanks so much for coming. Matt, Margaret, Hi. we're doing it live. I know, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's great. So we usually on this podcast, we focus on specific shows and trends that are happening in television. And today we wanted to take a broader view and kind of look at television through the eyes of our critics and their personal histories and what informs their views as critics. We'll grill them a little bit about what they think about the biggest TV trends today, and you'll get a chance to ask them whatever you like as well. So I wanted to start with, with little Matt and little Margaret <laughs> <laughs> and go way, way back to the first thing you ever watched on television. My first TV memory is also one of my first memories, which is one of the Apollo landings. I was a toddler and, and, and I don't know how much of this is somebody describing it to me and how much is my actual memory, but I reached up to touch the TV, and it was on a shelf that was poorly installed, and the shelf came out of the wall, and it destroyed the television. <laughs> so Destructive. Yeah, yeah, and, and you could argue that, you know, that's how, and that's how I ended up as a television <laughs> How about you, Margaret? Um... I remember there was like a song on Sesame Street filmed in like the playground that I went to as a little kid. So that felt like very special to like see your actual playground on Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, uh, it's actually uh, David Letterman. So I'm a I'm a night owl. I like to stay up late. And that was true even when I was really little. And uh, my parents kind of just caved and let me watch Letterman like as a toddler, basically. <laughs> and uh, he was like my nighttime Mr. Rogers. And I used to call him neighbor. So that was like <laughs> how I started <laughs> super watching television like at all hours of the day. <laughs> what about the first show you you watched consistently and loved? Like it was your show, you were watching it week to week and you felt it wasn't a kids show, it was a show that made you feel like an adult. I definitely watched 90210 from the very beginning, so that was like in elementary school, but uh, the first, like, great TV love I had was uh, Chicago Hope. That was, like, I was really, really into Chicago Hope and Melrose Place, starting in, like, 
seventh grade, I guess. You know, we watched like The Simpsons and In Living Color and stuff, but my first like I hang a picture of this show in my locker <laughs> show is, is Chicago Hope. So I still have like a um, EW fall TV preview from like 1994 <laughs> of like, you know, it's Chicago Hope and ER for season of Friends. Like that was a good TV year. And that was when I was first like old enough to understand everything and allowed to stay up late enough too. Right, to watch like a right. 10 p.m. show? <laughs> Did you have any restrictions on television growing up? Like what you were allowed to watch? or I never, I never really had any official restrictions. I, I spent, after my parents got divorced, I lived for several years with my grandparents in Kansas City. And I don't remember them ever telling us there was something we couldn't watch. Although once in a while, my grandfather would come into the room and see something that I was watching. And it was usually like, you know, horror or science fiction or a cop show or something. And he would walk in see like four seconds of what I was watching and he would go, violence, violence, violence. <laughs> and then he would leave. Uh, no restrictions. Uh, that said, like the only TV in my house growing up was in the living room and you know, there's seven people in my family. So anything that you were watching was like in public. There was no like secret TV time. Um, and then my dad's big thing would always be like, is this really worth losing sleep for when I would watch like like shows on E at like 11.30 at night or something. Um, is this really worth losing sleep for? And it's always like, yes, this is my favorite. It is worth it. Fuck homeroom. And like, <laughs> you know, I definitely watched like Golden Girls and Empty Nest and stuff with my grandma uh, on Saturdays, which is weird, but like there was like such a chunk of programming on Saturday nights that doesn't exist anymore. Yes. And then my dad would tape SNL and we'd watch it like as a family on Sunday morning. <laughs> and I think there was a point at which my parents were like, if you don't understand the joke, you can actually just be comfortable with not understanding and you don't have to ask us every specific person that's being like parodied right now. It's like, who's she? And they're like, okay, so there's a televangelist. It's like, what's televangelism? They're like, uh, just pass. Like, no, no, no need to explain this like very elaborate, like Tammy Faye Baker joke. You're just like, oh, Margaret, like be more comfortable letting some of these jokes pass you by. Well, I'm curious how you both, you know, what your thoughts are on raising kids with television and you know how you would go about it i mean matt you have done it and margaret just the you... cat just the cat <laughs> just the cat she has terrible taste i mean it feels like tv now i mean when i was growing up for example it was just my parents viewed it as trash and now that perception has changed quite a bit and it has, has that changed. affected how we raise our kids it has changed and you know i'm not the best statistical sample for this question because of what i do for a living but I always like watching shows with my kids, and, and I'm very fortunate in that my kids tend to like shows that are interesting. Like, I haven't... It's been a while since they've been hooked on a show that I found completely egregiously stupid, and I couldn't stand it, and I didn't want to be in the same room with it. Like, when they were kids, there were a lot of shows like that. Like, on the <laughs> Disney Channel, I actually forbade my daughter to watch the Disney Channel after a certain point, because I said, that's propaganda for bratty behavior. <laughs> the Disney Channel. I was like, I was not even kidding. It was like... I, I suddenly, I heard my, like, my own grandparents' and parents' voices coming out of me as I talked to her, like, you can't watch anymore because all they do is sass their parents. You know? Did she sass you back? Uh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, that was genetic, I think. Yeah. It was, but, but actually, you know, more recently we watch shows like uh, Hannah's in college now, and she, we watch Mad Men and Breaking Bad together. And watching Breaking Bad with Hannah was one of my most treasured uh, memories of her growing up. She later referred to it as father-daughter bonding through drug-related violence. <laughs> I had sort of a similar experience with my own dad of, like, we really like cop shows, my mom too, and so like Homicide was a huge part of like, even if we were in like sort of teenage fight mode, Homicide was like sacred 
territory that like you could never be so mad that you wouldn't watch Homicide. <laughs> and then with my mom, we were really into X Files. Uh, oh yeah. And then like my little sister and I, even when we were really not getting along, we would watch Cheers in syndication. Like you know, sort of during homework time late at night. I, I mean, in terms of placing restrictions, it seems sort of like a losing proposition. But I think like finding shows that everybody in your household likes. It's sort of like a nice little bonding thing, right? We're currently working our way through the Goldbergs. Actually, I guess we're done with the Goldbergs. Now it's on to Seinfeld, which is very exciting. Oh my God, the Goldbergs gives me agita. Yeah. You know, I like <laughs> the Goldbergs. so Go- much shouting. It's all it, shouting. It is all shouting, but I'll tell you what I love about the Goldbergs is they're really like a warm, demonstrative family, almost to the point of being gooey. And that was not my experience growing up. So for me, like the Goldbergs is as much of a fantasy as Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> like that's what I get out of it. When was the first time you kind of binge watched a show like in the early days when it wasn't really a thing, but maybe shows were coming out on DVD box sets and you were like sat down and inhaled an entire series? I feel like MTV used to marathon all of their shows like all the time. So I feel like there were periods of my life where like a week was taken up with every season of like real world and then road rules and then sort of like OG challenges. So like they were just like marathons of those and I definitely watched that certainly in like high school and stuff and then in college the N which is like no longer exists but they used to air they used to like (laughs) constantly have these every Degrassi ever marathons (laughs) and like they used to air Daria my college roommate Evelyn and I would like watch Daria and then there was just like so many commercials for Degrassi that we finally caved and then I (laughs) it was just like hold like like, sun goes up sun goes down Eiffel Tower like, like everything just like all taken up with Degrassi's and then the big one was was Lost, which actually sort of was the fir- the last fall season before I was working as a television critic. So that aired opposite Top Model, and I was like, mm, I picked Top Model, and <laughs> so I didn't watch the first season of Lost while it was airing. And then uh, the first season came out on DVD, and I was then writing about television, so I had to suddenly watch it, and it just like just like consumed my life like it was like I was watching it at work and then I was like oh shit like cancel everything like this is my whole purpose now (laughs) and I like uh it made it's like the dvds like made their way through my group of friends in like a week and a half and then I remember my friend Ben we were all going to dinner and he was like I just have like one episode of lost left I can meet you guys like why don't we all watch that together actually (laughs) it's just like all of my friends were like laying on the floor like what was life like before this show like I don't want to go I don't want to remember the dark time like (laughs) completely, completely consumed by Lost. I think Star Trek is the closest equivalent to an early binge watch for me because it was on like 5 or 6 o'clock every single weekday in Dallas and I would watch it with my brother as we ate dinner. I don't know how many episodes there were, 70-something, and we watched the same ones over and over and over and over and over again to the point where I could probably still quote like entire passages of dialogue even from the crappy episodes of Star Trek. (laughs) Margaret, you have told me that's a Margaret show. That's not a Margaret show. And I hear this a lot, and I think I know what it means. But I was wondering if you could tell us what a Margaret show is, and then I want to hear what a Matt show is. I mean, like, jokingly, I would say, like, does it have kissing? Uh, just because I like like romance. But honestly, like, the biggest factor for me is story and character. And I could, to, like, a real fault, take or leave aesthetics, which is Matt is like, no. Uh, but, like, that is, those are, like, the main drives for me is, is, is that there's a, an original character. So a cop who takes it personally, like, boo, no more. <laughs> you know, like, that kind of, yeah. like, lawyer with a dark secret. I'm like, oh, get away from me. Um, so, like, things that are, like, sort of beyond those, like, really stock TV pillars. I would say, like, the more 
original the voice, the better. I'd rather watch a show that has like a ton of unusual quirk and, and that its dialogue has a real ring to it than something that like moves more thoughtfully but sounds very blah. I like shows where you could, if you took the character's name out of the script, you could still tell who was saying what. Right, like I really, especially for comedies, like when we know our characters' deals very clearly. Let's see, kissing is up there though. <laughs> like I, just, I, you know, I feel like there's so much. I see so much violence on TV and and so many shows about people who are miserable that I really am drawn to shows where people like each other. I'm not saying like I don't ever like shows where the people dislike each other. I watch, you know, I watch a lot of stuff. There's like a variety of things I like, but especially when we're talking about sort of more traditional half-hour comedies, my like number one thing that I look for is do these people like each other? Because I think a lot of humor, certainly in, in regular meat space life, comes from, you know, people who know you and people who care about you. And I think that, like, your best material comes out at, like, your family's dinner table, right? Like, those are people that you like and care about. And, and I hate, like, mean humor. And I think, like, humor that sort of is at the cost of someone's dignity is something that, that I just never, never care for. Yeah. It depends. As far as the humor thing goes, there's a lot of... Some of my favorite comedies are ones where I would not want to be anywhere near the characters who are on that show, like, you know, Seinfeld or the Larry Sanders show, like, programs like that. I'm a big fan of Girls right now, and Girls is a show where, like, half the time I'm watching it with my hand over my face because I can't stand what they're doing to each other. (laughs) Um, But I would say, for me, the big draw is surprise. Surprise and innovation. Like, I'm kind of notorious for not being terribly enthusiastic about something that's classically oriented and consistently good all the time and being over the moon for something that's kind of only intermittently good, but when it's good, it's like, holy crap, I can't believe they did that. Can you think of any shows that fit that? Yeah, I mean, I can think of a million of them, and I'll give you one right now, which is from the, you know, from the past, but uh, I just, because I'm writing this book, this anthology of great TV shows, with my friend Alan Sepinwall, who I used to write with at the Star-Ledger, we have this section of the book called A Certain Regard, where we list shows that are maybe not altogether consistently excellent from start to finish, but there's something interesting or unusual about them that makes them worthy of note. And one of the shows in that section is the Stephen Bochco show called Cop Rock. And Cop Rock aired in 1990. It only aired 10 episodes. And this is the guy who created Hill Street Blues and NYPD Blue and L.A. Law. And this is a show that was like heavily inspired by Dennis Potter's uh, dramas in Britain, like The Singing Detective, where there'd be just a fairly straightforward uh, civic drama, like almost like something you'd see on The Wire or Hill Street Blues, and then they would burst into song. And it had original songs by Randy Newman and all these other people. <laughs> and it was like traditional sung through musical. And I remember it was, it, it is notorious. Go look it up. It made the worst of the year list for like. <laughs> Everyone who had a pen put it on the worst of the year list. And I was watching this thing going, this is an amazing show. Like, even when the song is kind of crappy, it's just so ridiculous that this ever aired on a network TV show, you know? And uh, so that's a little more my vibe. I got I to be honest. Like, and, and I'm constantly bringing up shows on the podcast that are like, what the hell? I'm trying to think of one right now. Like, Robbery Homicide Division, which aired four, I think, four episodes, and it was... Like the first show shot entirely on real locations with uh, no lights, like with little handheld digital cameras, like in 2000. And I, I would never claim that it was a great drama, like in terms of the characters, but I loved the look of it. Like I just wanted to be immersed in that world. Can you think of a time when a TV show made you cry, like really moved you? Like, 
so much that my kids make fun of me, probably. <laughs> uh, and there was an episode of the Goldbergs fairly recently that kind of got to me. I got to be honest. And that's not even that good of a show, like, compared to... <laughs> I'm serious, like, I, I'm not trying to insult... I mean, it's a good show, but it's not like a pantheon, like, this is one of the greatest works that Western culture has ever <laughs> right. produced. It's like, it's a perfectly good show, and it's kind of the same episode every time. They get into a little trouble, and then they're all... Everybody's fine at the end, you know? It's like most sitcoms. But, yeah, that's, that, that was the most recent one. But the first one that I can remember, like, just bawling at was probably um, the Andy Griffith show, a rerun of the Andy Griffith show where Opie killed a bird. Where Opie killed a bird and he felt horrible about killing this bird with his new rifle and his dad comes in at, like late at night and talks to him about like the ramifications of taking a life. And Andy wow. Griffith, like everybody forgets, like Andy Griffith was like the Ritz cracker you know, like happy-go-lucky, southern, drawling, you know, grandpa guy, but he could really bring it as a dramatic actor. And this one, like, I started, I was a little kid, and I started to cry because I felt like Andy Griffith was chastising me. <laughs> what did you kill? Uh, uh, well, actually, a couple of beers before I came out here. But... How about you, Margaret? I'll cry at literally yeah. anything. I was going to say, constantly. this question is... Yeah, this is hard for not, you. Like, like, I, you'd be hard-pressed to find a show that I've watched with any regularity that I haven't cried at. I'm just like a real softie. <laughs> like, I've cried at episodes of Friends. I've cried at episodes of Seinfeld. Like, I've... Yeah. Like, I mean, I've people, cried at Cheers, certainly. Cry at Girl. Like, yeah, I'll cry at anything. People being nice to each other <laughs> tends to get me. Yeah, I mean, anything It's not that... so much like somebody dying unexpectedly, although that might do it. It's usually just like somebody is nice to somebody and you don't see it coming. That's usually it Sure, like moments of grace will definitely do it. Anything that indicates like the bittersweetness of the passage of time, like that'll just do it. <laughs> uh, any, certainly anything about like um, the Olympics. <laughs> the Olympics. <laughs> it's just so magical. Uh, That's a very specific yeah. one. You mean the actual Olympics? Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like I mean, anything... Um, or like a parent holding a baby and telling them their wishes. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. Like, you're killing me. Like that'll do it. Uh, Just yeah. describing it. I'm also me. crying right now. <laughs> Just like thinking about how much I like to cry. Yeah, don't Stop keep it. it in. I'm like, I, you know, I grew up on Free to Be You and Me. It's all right to cry. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Legends. This Monday on TNT, Legends returns for a thrilling new season. Sean Bean stars as Martin Odom an undercover agent on the run, hunted by the FBI for a crime he doesn't remember committing. He's had many undercover personas, but which one is he really? FBI agent? Wounded Iraq vet? Or Russian gangster? Join the search across Europe as he digs up haunting memories and uncovers his true identity. Season premiere, Monday, November 2nd at 10, 9 central on TNT. What is the most extreme reaction you've had to something you've seen on television? Probably... There was an episode of um, Hill Street Blues that I saw when I was 12 or 13 years old. It, blew, it completely blew my mind, and I actually wrote a whole column about this because I think it's as responsible for me being a critic as anything else. But the plot of it is it's the very first television credit by David Milch, who would go on to write for NYPD Blue and create Deadwood, and it's called Trial by Fury. And it's about these two guys rape this nun, and they bring them into the station, and they can't prove that they did it. I don't remember all the details, but basically the the entire community is surrounding the station and they want to lynch these guys and Frank Ferrillo, the police captain, who is a Catholic 
is so completely offended by what these guys did that he wants them to confess, and he will do whatever it takes to make them confess. And he's basically, they can't make them confess because the evidence is not there. And he finally says, um, we'll just turn them loose, let's drop the charges. And if they walk out of the station, they're going to be torn apart by the mob. And the guys confess because they don't want to be torn about, apart by the mob. And I saw this, I was like 11 or 12 years old. And I love that show, and I love Frank Farillo because he was such a good guy. And I never saw a good guy on a show do something like that before. And it messed me up. It really, really messed me up. And like, that was like morally disturbing. And there have been things on TV that disturbed me because of the violence or something, or you know, the imagery was disturbing in some way. But that was the first time where I felt like morally disturbed by something on television. How about you, Margaret? Anything uh, really get to you? <laughs> well, weirdly, uh, one is a, a Lifetime movie uh, that I saw. I must have been in like maybe like fifth or sixth grade, and it was Joe from Facts of Life is a domestic violence victim, and her husband murders her. And I remember watching it, being like, "What is this? Fuck no!" <laughs> and then they get, like I just like sort of like was channel surfing and caught it later. I was like, "Oh hey, Joe from Facts of Life. What?" And like, <laughs> it was just like not prepared, and that like haunted me that was like nightmares like persistent unwanted thoughts about that show like that really messed me up but in terms of like uh on a lighter side like the last time I really like genuinely had like a like an instinct level reaction was I did scream fuck you at uh at how I met your mother (laughs) I was just like what moment might that be (laughs) when it was really clear that she was that she died I was just like fuck you and then like in my house like alone with like me and the cat (laughs) so that was like I mean to their credit they did elicit a very strong human response but I don't think that was what they were going for well, I wanted us to talk a little bit about TV today. You know, the conversation so much revolves around how much television there is. And I'm wondering what you guys wish you saw more of on TV. Women, that would be really high up on my list. Um, people of color, people with um, fluid gender identities. Like, everyone on TV sort of looks the same. Everyone's body is the same. Everyone's identity is the same. And, you know, we're seeing that change, certainly, but it feels like that change is going very slowly. I want to see more kinds of people on television. I also want more stories that are... uh, I feel like oftentimes coming-of-age stories for boys are about trips and for girls are about falling in love. And I want more stories for coming-of-age stories for women that are not about falling in love. Because I think, like, some... And that's true of some of my favorite shows, like Dead Like Me or Wonder Falls, where Dead Like Me in particular, it's a coming-of-age story about grief, and I find that really interesting and, and something that I think a surprising number of people relate to that is underrepresented on television in terms of, like, what made you feel grown up. It's not always, certainly, like, I fell in love with a boy. It's like, well, first of all, it might be I fell in love with a girl, or, like, I learned a thing about the world that I didn't know before, and I think there's a lot of ways to learn those things. I also want an actual really good mystery that withstands the level of scrutiny that we might attach to it. Do you mean a a mystery that is over the long haul? Not a self-contained, like, there is a mystery this week and next week there's another mystery. Right, so not episodic, a serialized mystery. And and honestly, like, of course I think that's going to have to be either a miniseries or something where it's like, it's going to be three seasons and that's it and we have a very clear end game Mm -hmm. because it's hard to plan for the last day if you don't know how long in the future that is. But I feel like this is one of those weird areas of television where... Um, the better the mystery is, the more we like scrutinize it, and it turns out like that has like ruined <laughs> like like that that most shows actually can't hold up to that level of attention, and it seems like a weird um, you know there are so many good mystery books right like we it's not like we are unable to craft mystery in in creative works, but right. I think television still doesn't have really truly great 
mysteries, at least in the contemporary pantheon of, of how TV operates now. This is a hobby horse that I ride a lot on, on the podcast, but I'll just say it again, which is my number one thing is not so much a content thing, although I agree with Margaret about telling stories that are not the predictable stories to tell. And I'm actually struck by how much progress has been made just in the last five years in that regard. Like the idea of a show like Orange is the New Black or Transparent or Blackish or Empire airing and getting as much attention as it has would have been unthinkable even maybe five years ago, definitely ten. But for me, the main thing is a structural thing, which is the airwaves are filled with television shows that should not have run as long as they have run. And there's a serious problem with the economic model, and it's getting a little bit better, but there's tremendous pressure to make a show go on longer than its natural lifespan would probably allow. And there have been so many shows that I've seen where they've had the first season is excellent, and the second season, the wheels kind of fall off the wagon. And then they spend the next couple of seasons trying to put the wheels back on the wagon again, and maybe they succeed, maybe they don't. One of the best developments in television in in my time as a TV critic has been this development of a new format, which is the, the anthology where the unit of measure is the season rather than the episode. Like things like American Horror Story and Fargo and True Detective, like while they haven't been consistently good, the idea of them is excellent. Like like Fargo, like I, I what is Fargo about? Fargo is kind of a vibe. Like the only thing the two seasons of Fargo have in common is they take place in the Midwest and usually there's snow on the ground and there's some crime. And that's about it. Like they're changing the characters out. They're changing the decades. Like next season they could set it. I actually joked with Noah Hawley at this panel recently. I said, you could take it really back into the deep past. And he said, yeah, we're thinking season three will be set in 1620, (laughs) which actually is not a bad idea. You know, there's so much more latitude. And the beauty part is you have... 10 episodes, 12 episodes, whatever to play with, and you're done. And if the season is great, that's great, good for you, yay, here's a cookie. And if it sucks, well, you can just start over again. And you don't have to dig yourself out of the hole that you've somehow put everyone in, like Homeland has been doing for years and years, for example. (laughs) I pick on Homeland a lot. But But I mean, I think this is like a Showtime issue, too. It is a Showtime issue. Like I think Dexter is, like up until Homeland, Dexter would, I think, for me, be the poster child of like something that really suffered from diminishing returns. I guess as long as we're making wishes, I also wish there was a show that ran a good episode every week all year. (laughs) And honestly, I don't actually think that's impossible, right? Because I think... So probably it would have to be more episodic than serialized. So... Given the the success of the format for Orange is the New Black, I think it would be very... <clears throat> the way I would do this is either, you know, we have a whole college class and every episode is about a different student. Maybe there's an episode about the professor, an episode about the TA, or like a it's a high school English class and everyone... And over the course of the year, we're going to really get all the way through... Uh, I don't know, The Great Gatsby, everyone meets out in high school, right? So, like, right. every week we, ha- we go home with one of the students and we figure out what his or her deal is. And, we, like, maybe there are some people that we see a lot of and some people we see a little of. Like, I, I genuinely, like, I know we say there's so much TV, but I still think we all probably at some point have a feeling of, like, oh, what am I going to watch, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you kind of do still feel like you don't actually have, like, butts to nuts perfect television. Right. So, I, like, I I do like more, and I know that the sort of ideal length of a season continues to shorten, but like I said, like Melrose Place is one of my like nearest and dearest shows, and I used to air 35 episodes a season. Like I want more TV for like for like if I want to get on board with characters, like I want to get all the way on board. And I like I I get why certain kinds of shows 
are shorter and less, and, and that's, you know, bonsai and beautiful for them, and then, like, they're perfect in their ways, but I also want, like, like Johnny Appleseed style, like, you can ride this TV show all the way to the other side of the country. Like, there's no end, you know? Like, this is just more and more. Like, I, I'm greedy. I'm super greedy. And I, and I don't think it's so out of the question. When we think about, like, hey, everyone who's making, like, crap TNT crime procedurals, like, fuck all your shows. All of you get together and write one big show. Like, I would prefer that. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. So another trend we've been seeing these days is shows coming back from the dead. I want to know your thoughts, A, on that whole phenomenon, and B, what's your dream show to bring back? Regardless Deadwood. Of, oh, yeah. I, I thought you would say that. <laughs> so I feel like Matt mentions Deadwood. Matt mentions a movie based in the seven, made in the 70s. Matt mentions my friend Alan Steppenwall. Everybody drink. There we go. <laughs> it's just like, That's right. Yeah. I mention kissing. I get the giggles. Lord Gazelle rolls her eyes at me. Everybody drink. Um, I think any big fan of a good show has some trepidation about watching it be revived because on the one hand, yay, like your wish came true. And on the other hand, even as a kid, you're told, like, be very careful what you wish for because you might get it. The revival of 24, for example, was not, like, it was fine, right? But you weren't like, yes, we're yeah. back. <laughs> like, like that, that didn't happen. It's a tricky thing because you want to, to bring back a show that was popular enough to to still maintain like, a spot in the general imagination, but also that maybe it didn't get the ending it deserved, right? That would be like the yeah. sort of dream scenario, and I think that's maybe why the Veronica Mars movie worked better than, than other things, because Veronica Mars did seem like it might come back at the end of that third season, and you felt like there was more story, there was more idea, we could have had more, and then, you know, I don't know other Veronica Mars people, but they, when they released that, like, this is what the fourth season would be. You were like, oh, curse the earth. Like, yeah. this is the only thing I want to watch ever. Like, I'm wasting my life, like, not watching this. I really like that movie. Yeah, that movie was terrific. Uh, so, I mean, for, for Gilmore Girls, you know, on the one hand, I'm very excited. I'm a big Gilmore Girls fan. The number of people were like, are you okay about this? It's like, <laughs> very touching. Thank you. Uh, my concern is, you know, yes, they, the Sherman Palladinos did not run the final season of Gilmore Girls. That said, like, season six, which they did run, also sucked, right? So, like, part of me is like, yay, more Gilmore Girls. Like, I can't wait. But I'm also, you know, if they're all episodes about April Nardini, like, I'm going to be really mad, yeah. right? Like, that was the worst. And same for X-Files. Like, I love the X-Files, but if it's like, yay, you know, more about Robert Patrick, it's like, fuck this. Like, that's not what I'm here for, right? I would rather watch, you know, standalone Monster of the Week episodes, honestly, because I think that that still has some of my favorite sort of, like, pep and idea and and more 
the things that the X-Files did better than anyone still has ever been able to copy. You know, it's hard to shit on something that doesn't exist, right? You don't want to be like, these will suck. But you're also like, oh, you know, this is not my first time at the rodeo. Like, there's a lot of stuff that sucks and a lot of stuff that comes back for no reason and a lot of things we see over and over again. And there's going to be sort of this, like, limit on how many times fans are going to get more excited and then just be stuck with, you know, Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, it's a problem. It's a, it's a real risk. Sometimes you need to let the dead things stay dead. There have been great examples. I mean, I had to eat my words, I thought, at the fourth season of Arrested Development, which I thought was great. And, and it was really ingenious, the way that they rethought the story for um, binge-watching. And they did it partly to get around issues they had scheduling the cast. Like, it was hard to get that cast all together in the same spot. And so they reconceived it as almost a series, almost like what you were talking about, like a standalone short stories. Okay, that is not what I wished for. I thought the last season of Rest <laughs> Development was hot garbage. That was my number one show of the season. I know. I loved it. I was it. devastated. I hated that. Oh, I oh. love that show. Oh, God. Oh, my God. That was garbage. That was disgusting well, be, garbage. Well, be that as it may. <laughs> so Matt likes garbage. I think I the number do. one defining factor I have of a Matt shirt that I have a shirt that says that. I have a shirt. Um, but the new X-Files, I saw the pile of the new X-Files at Comic-Con, and uh, it's kind of bad. Oh, it was kind of bad. I'm sorry yeah. to say that. I mean, I, I, we're, we're not, like, embargoed <laughs> or anything. They showed it to a crowd with, like, you know, several hundred people. But I've got a bad feeling about it. I hope that the rest of it is better than what I saw. Like, it felt very much like, yay. It was like, yay, the X-Files. But they didn't really go beyond Yay the X Files. <laughs> I think maybe my like taste has shifted to the Veronica Mars model of like a movie and then maybe like another movie or another movie. I think high on that list for me is Joan of Arcadia because it ends on a real cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Right? So it ends at this moment where like maybe God and the devil are gonna do a battle and it's like you know, it's Wentworth Miller from Prison Break and stuff, so it's like a sexy battle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I would watch that. Sports Night, really high on my list, because I do feel like that's a show that was like cut off before it was yeah, like, still be, in its prime. Right. You know, there was still stuff there, and I think Sports Night could actually have a really good 90 minutes in it still. Uh, and how many times will we be burned by Sorkin? Well, that's I mean, I'm, I'm down. Like, I'm okay, because I know, like, I, you know, the expectations are, like, certainly, like, I watched every episode of The Newsroom, like, I watched, I've watched Studio 60 more than once, like, I know what I'm doing, like, and it's okay, like, it was, like, I, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> I've cried at Studio 60, too, you guys. Um, and then uh, another big one, I think, would be Wonderfalls. I feel like that's, that's a show that still had a lot of show in it. I wanted to see another season of Hannibal. Just because Brian Fuller described a hypothetical season four to me, and he basically said they survive their plunge off the cliff, and they go to Europe, and they basically wander around being murder husbands. I was like, I want to see that. Sounds awesome. (laughs) You know, you guys were both really into Mad Men when it was on. Sure were. And still are. But is there a show currently on television, doesn't have to be running at the moment, but in the middle of its run, that you think is the best show on television? That's tough. I mean, I think what's tough, too, is that it's easy to think about Mad Men now that we're done with it and look at it on the whole. Certainly when it was airing, the first season I loved, but I think that, I, I, don't, I don't know that I remember feeling like, oh my God, far and away, this is the best thing on television. I might have, but I think my opinion of Mad Men was enriched as, it's, as it, the seasons went on, and certainly as, as you learned that it really did warrant the level of attention that you were paying to it. You know, same for Breaking Bad, which I actually didn't love the first season of, but... 
as it went on, you were like, oh, wow, they're really doing something. You know, so I think a lot of shows that are in their first-ish seasons are shows that I'm very impressed by. I think Transparent is really high on that list for me. But I also think we're talking about, like, very different to-do lists for Transparent and Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, who knows what, the, what season two of Transparent would entail. You know, it doesn't come out till I think, December. Mm-hmm. It makes it tough on people making year-end lists, FYI. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, yes. you know, that's a show I, I really like, and I've watched that like three or four times through already and every time do see more um, artistry in it and I am very taken by like the symbols that are present in it and, and how much attention it pays to small detail. But in terms of like my overwhelming like my heart only sings for you like Mad Men, oh, not yet. Yeah. yeah, I actually have a wiper board in my office at home and I have a list of possible top 10 shows. When you get to the end of the year, there's like 17 or 18 possibilities, and you call it. So it almost looks like a betting parlor, you know? It's, it's interesting. But right now, uh, Hannibal is at the top of my list. And it's difficult for me to imagine anything unseating Hannibal, because I thought it was the most, uh, the most audacious and formally innovative show on television this year by far. And, and this was a year that we had the last season of Mad Men, which I love. And I've just, I, you know, I wrote a book about Mad Men. I can't say enough about it. And after repeatedly scrutinizing those episodes, I'm still not bored with Mad Men. But Hannibal was just the altogether more mind-boggling, what the hell am I seeing here? I didn't know you could do that. That's a phrase I keep coming back to. There were so many moments on that show where I said, I had no idea you could do this on a TV show. But that so ended too. Moments. The question was what currently is available. Like what what, <laughs> well, Matt, what show that hasn't ended? Matt's well, still see, holding out hope. So. <laughs> well, I'm still. But also, it's tough to say because it's not done yet. But I'm very, very, very happy with Fargo. I'm very happy with Fargo, the direction that's going in. And I haven't seen the entire season, and it could still suddenly fall off the cliff and start sucking. I hope that doesn't come to that. Um, but that one's up there for me. Um, oh, the Americans. Is yeah, up there. the Americans is great. Yeah, C- C- catastrophe. That. Yeah, I thought catastrophe was great. Mm-hmm. Although there, there was such a short run of episodes, and I'm tempted. I'm like caution, uh, cautioning myself not to overrate it. But yeah, those are up there. Yeah, so I think Orange is the New Black, and I would also say BoJack Horseman, both are shows that, Absolutely. that I'm, I continue to be like very impressed with, very taken by, and shows that as they go on seem to be like tackling more and more, and, and they haven't, to me, at least reached a point yet where you're like, that'll do, show, right? Like I think sometimes shows that are ambitious or different can sometimes then decide like as they move forward, like now we're going to be about everything, and you're just like, oh, no, that's, that's the wrong the idea. The real test for me is like season three. Like when a show is really impressing me, like season one impresses me, season two impresses me even more because it's as good but more ambitious and they really seem confident. You're like, yeah, go show. (laughs) Season three is the test. Season three is where a lot of shows either get too full of themselves and start half-assing it and they become too much like navel-gazing or they take it to a whole other level. And and, uh, like I think the best example I could think of For me, is uh, Seinfeld. I feel like Seinfeld season three was an evolutionary leap beyond what they had done in one and two. And that's where Seinfeld really became Seinfeld. And I think The Sopranos, although the first two seasons of The Sopranos were great, season three was so unlike the first two because it felt like almost a collection of of disconnected short stories that happened to share characters and themes and not so much of a novel for television, which the first two seasons had been. And that surprised me. Like, the whole thing surprised me. And, in fact, I go back and look at my writing about season three of The Sopranos, and I see that I am frustrated all the way through because I'm looking for the master narrative that's going to dovetail neatly at the end and that there will be a traditional climax in the next to the last episode and a, and a, and a, and a ramping down in the finale, and they didn't do that. 
at all. Mm -hmm. And now I see that the problem was not the show. The problem was my expectations. Well, it looks like we are unfortunately out of time, but thank you all so much for coming. Thank you to Matt and Margaret. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. We'd like to thank Sam Dingman, Henry Malofsky, and Sarah Abdurrahman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.